Hi, I'm Mike McCormick and our theme this evening is uh, Irish science fiction. I've had a, a long time interest in science fiction, going back to childhood when I took an interest in spaceships and androids and robots and galactic wars and everything and it was an interest and a reading that brought me through my childhood and adolescence and on to this day. The difficulty was that there didn't seem to be an Irish tradition of writing science fiction but recently things are beginning to change in terms of recognition of the genre. We now have this new anthology by Tram Press of Irish science fiction from 1837 to 1960. It's an anthology called A Brilliant Void and its editor Jack Fennell is with me. Hi Jack. Hi Mike. Jack, it goes back 150 years and I count 15 short stories in it. It's a deeper a tradition than I thought. Oh yeah, I'd say so. I'd say plenty of people are going to be surprised at how far back this goes. We know our, our 19th century fiction and we know of our tradition of gothic writers and fantasy writers but our tradition of uh, 19th century science fiction writers has been edged out into mm. oblivion almost. How come? Well, our national consciousness doesn't have that history of industrialization that you see in other countries. You know, like most of our island was just farmland and forest and agrarian. So it, it was kind of harder to kind of weave that side of things in. You know, it's it's easier to believe in the fantastic or in the horrifying if you're living out in the countryside with no urban environment around you. But it, it's less uh, easy to kind of incorporate a scientific worldview into that, I think. And plus, as well as that, it, it the scientific and technological side of it kind of clashed a little bit with our national self-image following independence. And was there a distrust of science? I'd say there was. There yeah. was, definitely. I mean, if, if you look in the early 20th century, like when quantum theory came out and it was called the new physics, yeah, and nobody understood it, and everyone was <laughs> cheerfully admitting that they didn't understand it. But uh, you have uh, people like Joseph Otorna writing stories in Irish where you know, it's miraculously discovered that Einstein was wrong and everything is back the way it was and everybody's good and holy and well-behaved now. Uh, so, yeah, th that distrust was definitely there. I suppose before we go much farther, we might want to distinguish between our tradition of fantasy and supernatural horror and, and what separates that from science fiction. Science fiction is when weird stuff happens, but it's presented as being compatible with the world as we know it. Right, so something weird will happen, but it's kind of presented to you in such a way that, yeah, th this is within the, ra the realms of possibility. That's how it's presented. Uh, whereas fantasy and horror and uh, the gothic and stuff like that, that just happens. Yeah. And if, it's, if you think it's impossible, that, well, tough. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so sci-fi has to do a bit more legwork to justify itself. Yeah. Listen, we better take one of the stories from A Brilliant Void. We have uh, Mercia the Astronomer by Amelia Garland Mears. Can you set that story up for us? Can you introduce it? Right. Uh, well, Mercia the Astronomer Royal is set in the year 2000. Right. It, it, it was written in 1895, I think, but it's, it's set in the year 2000. And... At this time in the future, the Teutonic Empire rules over the, the world. It's a constitutional empire. Women are regularly employed as scientists and as politicians and what have you. And there's no gendered division of labor there. Mercia is the royal astronomer to uh, the emperor. And, you know, she's in charge of making the stellar maps and what have you that help Earth communicate with its colony planets elsewhere in the solar system. And then it turns out that the emperor is a bit of a creep 
and he wants more from Mercia <laughs> than she is willing to give. Just to give, yeah. Okay, well, we'll hear a reading of that story now by Jennifer Hoodie. It is an insult to me, thine offer of illicit love, and I refuse to longer remain in thy service. Upon hearing these words, the heat of the emperor's temper cooled. He saw he had not only ruined his cause with the lady, but he was bringing upon himself public dishonour, for the reason of the resignation of their gifted and enthusiastic astronomer would be demanded by both ministers and nation alike. As she turned to leave the apartment, for she disdained having further converse with him, he caught her by the dress with a view of detaining her. Stay, Mercia, stay and listen to me. Listen to one word more, I beseech thee. Thou shalt, for indeed I will not let thee go, he shouted, for she was wrenching herself out of his grasp. Touch me not, she exclaimed, or I will kill thee as thou stand'st. From her girdle she took out a small ebony stick, electrically charged, which she wore as a kind of life preserver, in accordance with the custom of ladies who worked or walked out a good deal alone. OK, that was Mercia, the Astronomer Royal by Amelia Garland Mears. And it's one of the stories in A Brilliant Void, the new anthology of Irish science fiction uh, published by Tramp Press. Uh, Sarah Maria Griffin, the author of Spare and Farm Parts. Sarah, that story that was just right there, that was very hashtag me too, wasn't it? It was in many ways. I feel like a lot of science fiction, it doesn't really matter where it comes from in history, uh, can build these remarkable futures where in some ways it seems uh, possible for uh, women to do anything and to belong in these ungendered uh, professions. In, in that short story, Mercia's beauty is lingered upon heavily, yes, um, heavily throughout. Although they've projected this beautiful future where we can be astronomers and work in science and carry small weapons, uh, we are also continually reduced to our physical form and our physical worth. So certainly it, it does feel like a prescient text in the conversation the world seems to be having at the moment. But it is in some way heartbreaking that although we can imagine these incredible futures, sometimes it feels out of reach to imagine a entirely equal. Or that we haven't progressed so far from (laughs) those initial imaginings. Um, What's your own connection, Sarah, with with science fiction? How did you become enamoured of it? Because we know from your from your first novel, Spare and Found Parts, that it forms a big part of the the book. Yeah, I grew up reading science fiction and I grew up playing a lot of video games. So a lot of my artistic aesthetic and the kind of work that I've always wanted to make belongs very firmly in that world. It's it's I'm I'm less concerned with things that we can see and touch and feel and explain and more concerned with things that we may not 100% be able to. And what I love about science fiction is that it effectively, when it operates well, it operates as a mirror. It shows us back aspects of our society that we may not always be able to see at angles we may not always be able to see them. So um, with Spare and Van Parts, the conversation that I was trying to have and the story that I was trying to tell very much deals with technology and uh, the body and what kind of future we may build for ourselves given the technology at our disposal and what would happen if we let it get out of our control. And was that always a concern or did it did it just when you sat down I know that we know that when we sit down and start writing fiction and that that certain themes announce themselves and they we don't know where they came out of or, or where they derive from but was this always were you surprised by the theme yourself or was it something that was always on your mind The theme was almost there before the story I knew I wanted to play with the Frankenstein 
legacy. I, mean, I wanted to look at that Prometheus myth. But the first images of the story that came to me are the first in the pages of the book, yeah. uh, which are set in a decimated Dublin. I wanted to, We've looked at Dublin in so many different ways through our literary tradition, but we don't look at it in the future. So much of contemporary Dublin is reflected so beautifully and clearly in Irish literature and historical Dublin as well. But there are no Dublins as futurist backdrops. There's no decimated Dublin. So that's what I wanted to do. Why do we not project ourselves into the future? Why does our, you know, is it a political thing? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a thing that we're so saturated with memory that we can't project forward? Why do we not do the future in Ireland? I think it could possibly be because Ireland is so focused on figuring out who we have been and building ourselves a current identity after the wash of colonialism. And in the space that we occupy in the world, between Britain and America, we are constantly in a state of fighting for our own identity via language, via culture. We are, we have a very, for a, for a country that has a very strong and assured identity, I'm not sure that we're looking very far into the future because we have to make sure our present is stable. We're still working it out. Yeah. And so when you were working on this book and you were projecting yourself into the, into the future of what we may become, what we may make of ourselves and that, were you, did you feel that you're, you were on your own doing this or did you feel that there was possibly other Irish writers out there doing something similar? I think that the only other book that I've read that looks at a future Ireland in this manner, honestly, and this could be me revealing my my reading tastes or otherwise, but the book that for me showed a a dystopic or utopic or future Ireland most clearly was City of Bohan by Kevin Barry. Yeah, um, which does build a fictitious city, which is, I, I believe I heard him once say that it was 0% Dublin, <laughs> um, mostly Limerick. Um, the city that he built in City of Bohan is a futuristic city. It's, it is a dystopia. It's never referred to that way in criticism or, um, or in discussion, but it is a future Ireland. It's just not a future Dublin. And I loved that book so much and was so heavily impacted by it when I read it. I thought, you know, I would love to build a Dublin past that point of destruction a Dublin after the world has ended and see how things work there. Um, I have Janet O'Sullivan here with me as well. Janet, you're chair of Octacon. Do you want to tell us who, what Octacon is and how long it has been in existence? Octacon is the Irish National Science Fiction Convention and we've been running since 1990. So we're around, oh, 28 years now at this stage. And uh, you've been a long-time reader and uh, an advocate of science fiction in this country? I'd like to say I grew up a lot in my local library. (laughs) (laughs) And I read fantasy and science fiction hand-to-hand. I think it was Madeleine Langle's books which really pushed me into reading more science fiction to learn that science fiction wasn't just ray guns and rocket ships, that there was more substance to it. And the stories of Meg Wallace um, were just wonderful. And it's been since then I've been reading it. And is that a particular aspect of science fiction that you that you like to experience? Is, is, it, is its willingness to delve into social issues and political issues? For me, that's what the best science fiction does. It allows us to take a step to the side and say, what if we have the technology to resolve the pressing issues? What if we have the technology to resolve our energy crisis? What if we have the technology to resolve a food crisis? What if we have the technology to eradicate most diseases? What are the social issues left then that we have to deal with? Even in the like the franchise Star Trek, you see that, you know, money doesn't exist anymore because it's not needed and hunger has been uh, resolved. But there are still the social issues and yeah. the ethics which we need to talk about and grasp. And I think it, when you talk with people who read science fiction, if you have books in common, it becomes a shorthand for having those ethical discussions. Yeah. I really enjoyed the Mercia's short story. What I think was the most amazing part was what happens at the end. 
because it is a constitutional empire and at the end the emperor is held uh, responsible for his actions and Mercia ends up becoming the empress. You know, that I found to be really amazing. There were consequences. Yeah. It still took her being put through a trial um, but it's interesting to see that um, we the future in that story is imagined where women have all this equality but yet we're still having to fight the, the social issues. Yeah. As for why we don't have much Irish science fiction... Ireland as a country, as a, as a modern republic, is very young. We're not 100 years yet. Yeah. And the Ashling and the dream that drove us to want to have our own country, our own identity, we still haven't quite fulfilled that as a nation. In, in keeping with the discussion, one of the, the, the criticisms of science fiction is, is that it's brilliant on issues and ideas and discussions and everything like that, but that there's sometimes a human deficit, that there's a lack of character and that this is sometimes seen to be the Achilles heel of the genre and that. And, and and I have to say it is for myself. I can sometimes come away from a book and certain novels and say, that was a great discussion. That was, and that gave me a lot of ideas. But as to whether or not I believed it as a human circumstance, I'm not entirely sure. Does anyone want to take up Well, that? I don't know what science fiction you've been reading because science fiction <laughs> as a genre is so vast. And for me growing up and reading books, which mostly had the hero story being a boy or a teenager or a bloke going off and doing things... The women and the girls that I found, I found them in science fiction. I didn't find them in literary fiction. Yeah. So in terms of I've been able to read about Meg Wallace, to read about Honor Arrington, to read Anne McCaffrey's books, which yeah. had amazing women characters in it, very strong characters, them in command positions, them struggling with big issues. And it's those characters, particularly those women characters, that still live large in my heart and my brain. Jack, do you want to develop that? It, it is true that for some science fiction, there, like there is a kind of a deficit on the character side and they kind of seem a little bit like shadow puppets kind of moving around the place while yeah. the the big ideas are happening. But as Janet says, doesn't I mean, ha- it there, doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't way. have to be that way at all. And yeah. there, there's a myriad of stories out there. You trace the Irish um, science fiction genre right back to the, almost to the Thornbuck Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think that this is true of science fiction generally i think that fundamentally the the logic of science fiction is mythic in the sense that you know a myth is invented to explain something and then it becomes more elaborate as time goes on and that's kind of what this is it's it's like inventing stories to communicate an idea or to communicate some kind of a deeper truth as to whether like there is such a thing as an irish science fiction novel I, I suppose just to compliment what Janet just said there it also depends on what you consider an Irish novel to be um, I so far like what I've seen of the stuff that I've looked at so far we haven't seen Irish science fiction that deals with the essence of Irishness or anything like that or tries to kind of get under the the skin of the national psyche or what have you mm. but it we do get science fiction that reacts to particular moments in history and we have in, in one of the short stories in the book here is explicitly takes its its cue from Irish history The Chronothron by Tarla Hoheed um, can you tell us about that? Well it, it was originally published as in Irish as Ankinador and I, I translated it as uh, the Chronotron, because that ending ador, ado for I, or that is effectively the Irish equivalent of Atron, you know, from, you know, Daffy Duck kind of um, science fiction inventions. But um, it, it's it's a, a humorous story about a guy who wants to drop a nuclear bomb on London. <laughs> and he wants to go back in time to do it and thus avoid the the civil war and transform Ireland into a utopia. And it's um, a, a fairly 
grim and kind of psychotic idea, but it's it's done in such a funny way that... I think it was that funny. But it was, <laughs> in fact, actually, I thought, I thought the opening page of it was was about as, as anguished and tormented a piece of writing as, a, as I've come across. I found that really interesting because of how it ties together what it is to be Irish. And the, the, the um, one of the twists in the book, the connection between... Irish people born in England and English people born in Ireland and what that means to be Irish, particularly at the moment, looking down the barrel of Brexit. Yeah. Oh, yes. So it's, a, it's full political commentary. Yeah. And that's, again, that's that thing, that wonderful thing that science fiction does and has always done is that it makes remark and it makes comment and it's satire yes. in many regards. And the last story in the collection is by Cahill O'Sander. And whereas the chronoton takes its cue from political history, this one takes its cue from social history and is all about immigration. Well, this is set in the same universe as his Captain Sperling novels, which is a kind of Dandere-esque, you know, adventures in outer space kind of setting. But this is focusing on a young man from Kerry who decides that he's going to immigrate to the moon to make his fortune. And the familial trauma that comes out of that and how he gets on on the moon and what happens when he decides to return home decades later. Sean Murphy had decided to return from Luna to this world and to spend the end of his life in his native land, Aaron's Emerald Isle. Yes, he said to himself, to be back in a place without any need for an artificial atmosphere or spacesuits, that's what would cheer my heart. A long time before this, when Sean was a strong young man in County Kerry, he saw an advertisement in one of the newspapers. Employment on Luna. The government of Luna welcomes young men and women between 18 and 25 years of age. The government will cover the cost of the journey from Earth and migrants will be employed as soon as they arrive. Additional information and a free booklet, Your New Life on Luna, can be obtained on request from the Lunar Information Office, O'Connell Street, Dublin. For a good while before he spotted this ad, Sean Murphy had been entranced by all aspects of space travel. In addition, there were few households in the community that did not already have a family member that had gone to the moon to seek their fortune. There were good wages to be had in the glass-canopied lunar cities, and there was no rain up there either. Sean already knew all of that, but his mother never dreamed that he would ever actually consider going. She never imagined it. And Sarah, in, you must have found this story completely recognisable, Sarah, because your own first book was a book called Not Lost, yeah? yeah. And, and it dealt with immigration. Yeah, I lived abroad for three years, uh, which really doesn't seem that long now, given especially the scope of this last story. You could replace the word lunar, which is Luna, right? Which is the moon, with California, with Australia, with London for any Irish person. It's an incredibly sharp and quite sad metaphor for what happens over the span of a lifetime of somebody who leaves Ireland young, has a family far, far away and comes back to an Ireland that they are not comfortable in and can't recognise. It's it's very succinct. There's a long, there's a section in there, the mother's lamentation and grief at the mm-hmm. at her son going away, and it it really reads to me like what I remembered from Peg Sayers, like the lamentation and the grief of uh, of going away. So it's obviously he was he was drawn from the past to speak about the present, to look into the future in that piece. 
very accurately and I feel the this the he had a huge family while living on the moon as well <laughs> and the list of the lives of the children including the deaths of one of the children like it really covers this this huge viewpoint on what an Irish person's life is and can be once they go away one, one of the hallmarks that one of the things that rang so true to me was that he comes back and he can cope with nearly anything but the weather gets into his bones. Which I think is a real sign that it was written in 1916 before any of us knew what was going to happen. I don't think that he would have been able to predict how hot Ireland has become. Sarah, I have have an ongoing project myself on kind of writing science fiction short stories and um, we'll see how that... We'll see how far that takes me in that. But is your own work going to continue on in that vein, do you think? Absolutely. My my next novel, um, is it's it's something called speculative fiction. So it's grounded very heavily in reality with stranger elements. It, it bends the limits of reality. It's coming out in March. It's called uh, Other Words for Smoke. It's set in Stepaside. <laughs> it's set in the Dublin Mountains and it's about a haunted, broken house. And the novel I have coming down the pipe continues to explore our relationships uh, as people and our relationships with the the other and the stranger things in life. So I feel like the kind of work I will always produce will always deal slightly outside of the boundaries of our reality because those metaphors have so much to offer. They're so rich and they're so much fun. Okay, Janet, Sarah mentioned the word speculative and science fiction. Is there a division between the two? and Are, uh, are they one of the same thing or is it... Uh, is it marketing? Is there an intellectual difference? Is there an artistic difference between the two? Some of it's artistic, some of it's marketing, and some of it are the divisions that people put on it themselves. Margaret Atwood, we might read her books, and I would read her books, and I would say they're absolutely science fiction, but Margaret Atwood herself would call it speculative fiction. Even though um, Handmaid's Tale is very well known, she has got other books which have people who have been gene-edited in it, and uh, to a level which isn't possible. So I would say that's definitely science fiction. And then you have um, some people who will say... Science fiction is hard science fiction. If it doesn't have rockets and ray guns, it's not science fiction. So it depends. Depends. It's it's a it's not a hard line. It's very much a blur. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as people are enjoying it and want to talk about it, that's happy enough. Jack, you're a historian of uh, of Irish science fiction, so we're going to ask you to project forward. What do you think is coming down the road to us, or what do you think the the future of it may be or can be? Well, if you look at the overall trajectory of science fiction in terms of protagonists and in terms of themes and what have you, uh, you can see like from the 19th century onwards, like we start off with very kind of unsure of ourselves. Our protagonists are Hamlet-esque, you know, like always indecisive and not sure what to do. And then as things slowly get better, we become more confident. Uh, We kind of start producing sci-fi heroes and the American thing like Kahlo Saunders, uh, Captain Sperling. Thematically, during the 1980s, there were a lot of dystopias. Uh, Through the 90s, what happened was we seemed to have developed this sense that the future was going to be invented somewhere else and that we would import it. And I think that that's probably due to all the multinational corporations that were setting up little tech hubs in this country. Nothing was produced locally, but, you know, these wacky foreigners were coming in and bringing the future to us. Um, With books like Spare and Found Parts and books adjacent to it, I think like Jason Mordaunt had Welcome to Coolsville. That's right, yeah. I think we are moving beyond that now and we're not going to say, all right, okay, we're not going to hang around and, you know, buy the future from someone else. We're actually going to attack it on our own terms. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think we're going to go from strength to strength. 
Well, we've had the communications model on the Rosetta probe, which landed on an asteroid going through space. And the probe communications between the satellite and the probe on the asteroid, all of that was invented and created and curated from Minute. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. Irish technology that was created, launched into space, put on a satellite, landed on an asteroid. That's not science fiction. That That's science fact. fact yeah. Yeah. So we already are are there in terms of this is happening with Irish technology, Irish people involved, Irish universities. Do you think do you think that we need the technological landscapes uh, and the that sort of technical inventiveness that uh, that that's a prerequisite for the science fiction of the future? Well, science fiction was being written before the technology existed. It was all oracle work. It was all looking and imagining what things would be like. And now that we've the place that we operate in in history at the moment is is one of technological phenomena. And Ireland is Europe's tech hub. We are we have we have Silicon Docs, you know, we have a, a micro Google Valley in Rings End. You can't even write you cannot write a modern Dublin without looking at the fact that we are a we are a city that is is run and moneyed by the internet for good or for bad, you know. So uh, the the future that we have to write about also has to reflect that. That's an intrinsic part of our identity now. It's a common obs- observation of Irish literature as opposed to genre fiction that that uh, Irish literature that that's precisely the thing it doesn't touch that uh, it doesn't touch technology and it doesn't touch the working life that goes into technology and um neither does Irish drama or anything like that. None of us has ever seen a play set in Google or none of us has ever um, read, a, read a, a novel about the, you know, the making of, of Botox or something like that in West Mayo and that. So do you think it might be that science fiction might have a special mission or a special awareness for us in the future? I do think so. I think it has a responsibility, as always. To uh, I do think it's possible for fiction to comment and to make change. I don't think it's in many ways, it, it, it is entertainment, but at the same time, I do think it does have a purpose in its existence. I think the reason that it doesn't exist so far, and this is a genuine uh, observation, is that the language of the internet is quite ugly and it's also quite new. So we don't know how yet to make Google and Facebook and an iPhone and iTunes sound poetic or sound romantic or sound beautiful. Words like that still look stark on a page because all of the reading that we've done in our lives don't inc- it doesn't include that language yet. As you've said, we have written science fiction before we had this tech, before we had mm. the words. You get science fiction writers making up words That's for true. things That's that haven't been true. invented yet. And when you're reading a book and there's a communication device in it and it's called whatever... You, you very quickly know it is, oh, that word, whatever, that's what that means. And it becomes shorthand from it. I think that writers are going to be catching up very quickly. Um, folks, thank you very much. It's been, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you and maybe we can carry this on somewhere else again. And that thanks to my guest, Janet O'Sullivan of Octacon, Sarah Mary Griffin, whose book Spare and Found Parts you'll find in the science fiction shelf and Jack Fennell, editor of A Brilliant Void, published by Tramp Press. Thank you very much, folks. <laughs>